Amen. All right, let's go Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Not Romans. Luke chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would actually uh, invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, we, we value the Bible for all kinds of different reasons around here, but chief among those reasons is that God uses his word, the scriptures, to reveal himself to his people. Uh, the unapologetic mission of National Baptist Church is, to, is for you to know God. Like We, we want to get your nose in a Bible as often as possible if that's the primary tool he's going to use. And so uh, we open it up in here. We encourage you to open it up in other places. We got Bible studies and uh, Bible reading plans and all those kinds of things. We, we want you to just be immersed in God's word. And so we believe that God will use it in a big way. Uh, Luke chapter 2. So if you weren't here last week, we shut down our Roman series uh, for the next little bit uh, for what I think is um, the best or at least one of the best time of the year. Uh, some of y'all are like, yeah. Some of you are like, nah. No, no, Christmas season, it's just this incredibly wonderful thing. And, and for some of y'all, you love the Christmas season because of, you know, like really like noble sounding things because like you, you, you like to be the gift giver. God's just kind of wired you that way. You're really good at it and all of those things. And, and for others, it's that they, they get to this, this next month, they get to spend time with family and friends that they don't normally get to see. But for the rest of us, like, what do, you, what do you really love about the Christmas season? For, those, for most of us, it's like the lights and the music and the food and the deck. How many of y'all decorated your tree yesterday? Yeah, it's coming. So the rest of you are coming next week, right? Now, there's a lot of different reasons that people love the Christmas season, but like, like, for a lot of us, it's all the kitschy little stuff that's gotten added to it. Maybe it's the 4,000 Hallmark movies that have been made this year. Like that? How many of y'all are the Hallmark movie fan? Yeah. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but they all seem to star like 12 rotating actors and actresses. <laughs> they all get the chance to date each other. They all get the chance to fall madly in love with each other over the course of a week. It'll be fun stuff. Um, they will also get the chance to be snowed into some kind of quaint little Vermont town. Uh, and they will also have some kind of weird timing thing where the relationship is almost doomed because the brother or the ex-boyfriend or the business partner is going to do something that totally looks like them and the main actress are together, but it's all just a huge misunderstanding. And then they'll almost break it all off. The person will run away, but then they'll be called back at the last second to fix something. And they'll laugh and laugh and laugh as they discover it was just a huge misunderstanding. And they'll be happily ever after as they finally have their last kiss at the very end of the movie. Have you seen this one before? Yeah, man. Hallmark knows the game. Hallmark knows the game. We are all longing for that happily ever after. Christmas, um, for a lot of people, and I think I would count myself as one of these people, is truly the most wonderful time of the year. I, like, I get wrapped up pretty easily in all the lights and the festivities and all that kind of stuff. And, like, I might want to get past Thanksgiving first. That, that's allowed. I want to get past Thanksgiving. But as soon as we get past Thanksgiving, it's time to hit the go button, man. I love this time of year. But, but listen, there are others, though. There are others that don't look at this season as the most wonderful time of the year. In fact, you probably scoff at such an idea. For... Some, for some it's not a happy time at all, and you, you, might, 
You might get labeled a Grinch by those who are all caught up in all the festivities, but for many, Christmas is actually a season of loneliness and a season that reminds you of just terrible heartache, right? And if we were being really honest in here, I, I don't know if this is a safe place for that, but like if we were being really honest in here, like how many of us would, would say that even though we love this and this and this and this, there are other parts of this season, things that get wrapped into this season and reminded of in this season that we don't love so much, right? Like how many of you are already, like it's December 1st, like, how many of you are already looking at the calendar and starting to get frustrated by the, by the need to squeeze everything in over this next month? And how many of you already have somebody who's mad at you because you're doing option A instead of option B this year? Oh, no, oh, no, just me? <laughs> I'm the only one that lives with that? Liars. How many of you are already beginning to feel the pressure of that rising level of giving and receiving that just ramps up every single year? You always have to raise the bar. You always have to do better. You always have to come through this time, right? How many of you already feel, already get a sense that by the time you get to January, you're going to be exhausted and probably have some unhealthy credit card debt? and probably be another 15 pounds overweight, <laughs> right? Like how many of you are likely to get to the other side of this holly, jolly, most wonderful time of the year and be left wondering why you bothered to go to all the trouble? Am I alone in that one? See, there are plenty of things about this season to love, and, and make no mistake, I, I think we should love them. I think they're good things, God-given things, and I'd argue that it actually takes a pretty cold heart not to be un, just to be unmoved by a lot of these things around us over the next month. But, but like, if we're also really honest, like, like how many of us would secretly say that we kind of hate this time of the year? Obviously, we'd never say such a, a terrible thing out loud, like such a heinous thing should never be uttered. But after all the guests go home, you got a giant mess to clean up. And you're wondering why you said that thing you promised yourself you would never say to them. Or in that moment where you're wondering why you didn't get the cheap batteries for the kids' toys so that they would run out sooner. <laughs> you too. That I, I let you a little too far behind the curtain on that one? Or, or maybe when the dust clears and you're left with the resounding, resounding answer that all those hopes and dreams that you were promised in the Hallmark movie didn't pan out for you like they did for that fictional character. Right? What about in that moment? How do you really feel about Christmas? Could it be and I know I said the exact same thing last year, but we live in a culture that needs this drum beat over and over and over and over again. Could it be that the frustration and the exhaustion and the repeatedly unmet expectations that come along with this season have more to do with our approach to this season rather than the season itself? Could it be like that all the burnout that many of us seem to experience by the time we get to the other side of this tunnel could, could that actually be escaped simply by walking through this season differently than what the lost world around us tries to force us into? 
And so over the next few weeks, over the next few weeks, I want to I help us walk a better way. I just want to open up God's word and show you that, that while all the extra stuff can be good like like nobody's dogging anything in here like I, I like the lights i like the christmas songs i like the cookies like we, christmas cookies god gave us christmas cookies like i like those things those things can be good but in the very same breath i want to show you that an infinite joy is found in intentionally stepping back from some of those things for a moment and paying closer attention to the earth shaking a reality of the original story See, what took place the very first time the birth of Jesus was celebrated far outshines anything that's ever been dreamt up and offered in our day and age. Far outshines. Lights and decorations are great, but I, I truly think that, that none of those things actually holds a candle to the very first Christmas that was celebrated. Let me show you what I mean. We're going to be Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8 and pick it up kind of in the middle of the story. Luke 2, verse 8. Luke says this, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by, our flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Verse 10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, who is Christ the Lord. Verse 12, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 15, and when the angels went away from them into, the, in, them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when, the, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So because of the culture that we live in, right, because of the culture that we live in, it is likely that everybody in this room has heard this story dozens of times right? Whether you're a Christian or not. You, you could be the, the person who has no idea who God is. You don't do the church thing, but because of the culture that we live in, you have heard this story. It gets proclaimed at, on the mountaintops every year. Heck, this is the reading of this story. Luke's narrative is the greatest moment in Charlie Brown history. Linus drops the blanket, right? We, we know this story. Heard it. We sing this story over and over and over again. And because, guys, because of the overwhelming familiarity that we have, that we have this, with this story, man, I, I really, truly think that we completely miss how earth-shaking it actually is. Seriously. Like, literally earth-shaking. Like we, like, we give it lip service, but... 
when was, when was the last time that you were truly blown away by this story? Could it be that it's become too familiar? I mean, just consider the setting for a moment. Roman-occupied Judea. Not Israel, not even Judah. Roman-occupied Judea. And for those of you who don't have much of a, uh, a church background, uh, the golden age of God's covenant people happened about a thousand years before this moment. It was a glorious time. Everybody looked back on that time and said, yeah, that's the time we want to get back to. But King David dies, and then King Solomon dies, and then King Solomon's son is a moron, and he splits the kingdom in two. You got the northern kingdom called Israel. You got the southern kingdom called Judah. And that little situation lasts for about 140-ish years until the northern kingdom is overthrown by the empire of Assyria. The southern kingdom, Judah, kind of limps through the next 200 years. they got some good moments, but they have a lot of down moments. Until they are overthrown by the empire of Babylon in 586 BC. And from that moment on, 586 years at least before this moment in Luke 2, from that moment on, God's people, his covenant people, a promised people in a promised land, mind you. God's people are passed around as either slaves or a vassal state from one empire to the next. The Babylonians fall to the Medo-Persians, who fall to the Greeks, who fall to the Romans, on and on it goes. And so the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, right, is now nothing more than a tiny district in the far corner of the mighty Roman Empire. Nobody's paying attention to Judea, and nobody's paying attention to Bethlehem in Judea. And so if you're a shepherd sitting on a quiet little hillside in the middle of the night, a millennia removed from the golden age of your people, a sleepy little backwater town and a sleepy little backwater district, the last thing on your mind right now is whether or not this is the night that God's going to finally fulfill all his promises. In, in fact... If you're a shepherd sitting on a hillside in this moment, you're probably beginning to scoff at anybody who would dare bring up the subject. You kidding me with that long-awaited hope garbage? Nah. Show me a God who can conquer mighty Rome and then I'll pay attention. I want nothing to do with that. And then all of a sudden, a great light. A great Light. Luke says that an angel suddenly appeared before them. Now, whenever you come across an angel in the Bible, uh, you need to, to kind of consciously take a step back and undo some bad theology for a second. The reason for that is because just about every cultural reference you've ever seen of an angel has nothing to do with what the Bible actually says about angels. Uh, they're just far away removed. Like, for instance, if what comes to your mind when you think angel is like from precious moments or your grandmother's Christmas tree topper, all right, they're you just have a wholly unbiblical idea of what an angel is. Whenever angels show up in the Bible, they're always having to pick people up off the ground and tell them that they're not there to slaughter everyone. Like, you know, don't, don't, don't die. I'm okay. I'm the good guy. And what, is, what are we told in, in verse 9 or verse 10? Fear not, right? Angels are magnificent and terrifying in the original senses of those words. Absolutely amazing. 
You are right to be fearful in the presence of an angel. It's just, it's what you ought to do. And so Luke tells us here that not only does an angel show up, but the glory of the Lord shines around him. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds amazing. You take normal angel awesome and you add glory of God awesome to it. The, the glory of God accompanied his message. And how do the shepherds react? The answer is appropriately. They go, uh-oh. Says they were filled with great fear in verse 9. Like, what would you do? You, you play in a different, you're running a different route than the, than the shepherds. You, you, you're standing up there going, I got this, guys. I'll fight him off. They hit the deck, man. They were filled with great fear. But the angel didn't just show up to scare a bunch of dudes on a hillside. He's got a message, right? And so, so after that, after he calms everybody down, he tells them in verse 10. Read it again with me. Verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. The city of David is a nickname for Bethlehem. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is who? Christ the Lord. He says, good news of great joy. The angel shows up to make an announcement that the whole world needs to hear because this is good news for the whole world. And it's a joy-producing good news. A joy-producing good news. For unto you, uh, uh, born unto you this day. In other words, given or gifted to you today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, and each one of those three titles are massive. Guys, this is the most epic birth announcement in history. By a landslide. I don't know, Stephen. I got like 200 likes when we talked about our kid on Facebook. Some of you predate that and you're, it's probably for the good of the world. sitting on a lonely hillside in the middle of nowhere that no one is paying attention to, watching some sheep. These, these shepherds are a privileged audience. A privileged audience. The, an angel shows up to tell them about a newborn baby, and this baby is called three different things. He's called Savior, he's called the Christ, he's called the Lord. Massive titles. This, this baby is a Savior. He's come to rescue people. Do I need rescuing? Yeah. Yeah, I do. This baby is called the Christ. Those of you without a church background, that, that's the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament's Messiah. So, which means that, that everything that's wrapped up in the Old Testament's promises about this kid find their culmination in this kid. Like most of us get like nine months of waiting and preparation to get ready for this. this. This kid was promised back in the garden. But on top of all that, this we also learned this baby is the Lord. God Himself stepped into human history. The Lord Himself had come. When when my son was born, uh, obviously it filled me with a lot of pride. Like like, come on, he's a Woodard kid, right? Like, endless potential. Whatever the world throws at him, he's got it. He's Will Woodard, right? Um, we, we also chose a name for him that kind of set a high bar for what mom and dad dreamed about his future. Uh, we gave him the name William Carey. 
William Carey uh, is commonly known as the father of modern missions. He lived a couple hundred years ago. Uh, and and, and what, what made William Carey so special was, was that he cast a giant vision for missions in an era where nobody was paying attention to missions. He said, no, 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 this is what God would have us do. He pointed to the Bible and said, look, this is what God would have us do. He would have us take the gospel to the nations. It is our responsibility. And everybody around is going, nah, no, 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 we got this over here to worry about. He says, no, this is our call. This is our mission. And then when nobody else stepped up to answer that call, he answered it himself. He took the gospel to India. Massive, massive hero of mine. So I gave my son the name William Carey. Mom and dad can dream, right? Now, it doesn't mean for one second that our William will walk in and do the same stuff. One, that guy is really hard to follow. But two, God probably has a completely different plan for his life, and that's okay, and we're going to celebrate that and equip him for that and all those things, but a dad can dream, right? But in Luke 2, in Luke 2, these, these titles aren't, aren't daydreams of a, of a naive parent. They are cosmic declarations of who and what this child came to be. Savior, Christ, the Lord, the, the promised seed, all the way back in the garden, had finally come to forever crush the serpent's head. That kid, he's here. The, the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about, who would forever reign victoriously. He's not just a faraway promise anymore. No, he's, he's, he's here. He's just a couple miles down the road. You should go see him. He's here. And then the angel told the shepherds where to find him. Why? Because you don't hear earth-shaking news and just sit there. It calls for a response, right? This kind of massive information demands reaction. And so in verse 12, he says this, And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. When a future king is born, you don't place them in a manger. You, you just don't. If you're not sure what a manger is, this is a manger. It's an elevated hay trough. Why? Because you don't want to leave your hay on the ground so it can get wet. It ruins the hay. So you get it up off the ground so the animals can eat it, right? That's what it's for. And if you're wondering, why in the world would Mary, a new mother, choose to place her newborn child in that thing? And the answer is because it was better than the floor. That's what she had, right? That's all they had. There wasn't any room for them in the end, remember? Future kings are not born in stables. You don't lay future kings in a manger. The question is, why was this one? Uh, you may not ever have ever really thought it through before, but Joseph's failure to find lodging that night was no accident. It, it was no accident. It's not some oversight of an absent-minded dad who simply forgot to book the room. Happened to you too? 
the sovereign God of the universe is in control of all things concerning this story. He ordained that Mary and Joseph would travel from Galilee to Bethlehem by stirring the heart of a wicked king, the most powerful man on the, the earth at that time, Caesar Augustus, stirring the heart of a wicked king to call for a census. He wanted to know how many people he got. So by God's sovereign decree, a Galilean family end up in the city of David. God is sovereign over the macro, but guys, he's also sovereign over the micro as well. He's in control. The lowliness of Jesus' birth narrative is a God-ordained design. It is. Why? Because he's pointing us to something even more massive. He's pointing us to a piece of the story that we don't naturally think of. This, this king would deliver his people, but it won't be by coming in glory. It will be by coming in his own humiliation. He made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant, we're told in Philippians. This king wouldn't save by his glory. This king would rescue, redeem, save his people through his own humiliation, through his own suffering. Not, not only had God come to us, which is a massive deal on its own, not only has God drawn near to those who are separated from him because of our sin, but he also came to serve. He came to save by suffering and dying. We say all the time around here, we celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter. He came near, but listen, before the shepherds even have a chance to process this massive information, this world-changing information, the sky explodes on them. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angels, he says, suddenly. They didn't have time to think about it. They didn't call mom and ask for some advice. They, they just suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Multitude of heavenly hosts. It's a term that a lot of people say every year and even sing in Christmas carols every year. They have no idea what that means. Anytime the Bible talks about a host, it's talking about an army. So, Multitude of heavenly hosts means giant angel army. That's, the, that's just the Stephen Woodard translation of that. Giant angel army. And they're shouting. How you doing today? <laughs> like, like one angel showing up is enough to make these shepherds wet themselves and need to be picked up off the ground. Then all of a sudden, there's a giant crowd of them and they seem to be like excited about something. How are you going to respond? Are you A, freezing in place, or B, ducking under cover? There's no option C. Which one are you doing? Glory to God in the highest. They shout, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Peace, guys. The God these angels were created to worship sent them with a message of peace. Peace. But look at the next verse. That's what's really interesting to me. 
When the angels went away from them, I'm in verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The most glorious birth announcement in all of history exploded onto the scene in the blink of an eye. A glorious and terrifying army of angels shook the heavens with praise, right? Like, like in Isaiah 6, we, we learn there that when angels shout God's praises, the ground quakes. You might think that like that didn't happen this time too. Like dude, Luke doesn't mention it, but I'm going with it. They show up, and the sky explodes with the praise of God. But then also, just as quickly as it started, it was just over. They go away. Shepherds got up and went to see the kid. And as I was looking at the text this week, trying to figure out where we were going to go with it, I, like, I kept coming back to this nagging question. Like, why did all those extra angels show up? Like all the important information was shared through the first single angel. Like yeah, the, the, there was an announcement of peace that came when the angel army showed up, which is a big deal, but that information is also implied in what the first angel said. When the Savior comes, peace comes. You're, you're saved. There's no new information that's brought on by this just explosion of worship. and It's just a celebration of God's goodness that explodes out of the announcement, it seems. Which, it finally occurred to me, the multitude of heavenly hosts had, and the word here is had, to show up and praise God in that moment because there was no other option for beings created for worship to do. It's what they were made for. They had to respond that way. Let me say it another way. When we wrap our heads around who God is and what he has done and what he is doing, worshipers can't help but naturally, naturally respond with worship. It's, it's not actually a choice in that moment. It's an involuntary response to his goodness. It explodes out of those who see it, get a sense for it and understand it. An angel shows up and announces what God has done on a quiet little hillside in a sleepy little town, and the hillside explodes with praise. Worshippers got to worship, man. It's what they do. It's what they were made for. See, there's a, there's a big difference, a really big difference between simply giving lip service to the Christmas story and truly being blown away by it. The angels who understood it properly, they sang they sang. A proper reading of this story, at least for the Christian, should never, ever be without awe. It ought to stir something in us. Guys, God came near. Not a, not a faraway throne anymore. He came near. The, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who was promised all the way back at the fall, right? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between your son and the son of the woman. That one, that one finally came. He came in humility. He came to serve. He came to save. He came to die for his people and thereby bring us peace. He's here. He's here. 
Follower of Jesus, I sincerely hope that you enjoy all of the things that get wrapped up in this celebration of Christmas this year, but my far, far bigger hope for you is that you would be moved to involuntary worship over the next several weeks. You can't help, you can't even try to keep it in. It just explodes out of you. My hope is that as you read and reread the Christmas story this month, that it actually, cha- you read it in such a way that, you know, it actually changes your eternity, right? This is earth-shaking news. My, my hope is that as you sing Christmas carols over the next few weeks, that they explode out of you like an angel on a hillside. That's, that's my hope. Oh, but I don't really sing. Yeah, but worshipers got to worship, man. Who cares? It is completely possible. I think it is entirely possible for you to know and love Jesus and discover that you've been unmoved by the Christmas story. Not, Not only is it possible, I think that's actually normal. Our fickle hearts grow numb to familiar things. That's what we do but you don't have to remain in that numbness. You can do something about it. You can do something about it. You can instead be on purpose to step out of that familiarity. You can be on purpose to surround yourself with reminders this year that the first celebration of Jesus' birth far outshines all the extra stuff we've added to it. I'm not dogging the extra stuff. It can be good, but man, if you strip that away and pay attention to the real thing, It's better. It's better. I I think that the follower of Jesus responds to God's word this morning by looking carefully at their calendar and carefully at their to-do list and maybe even cutting out some good things. Not, Not bad things, good things, worthy things. But cutting out good things for the purpose, for the sake of slowing down and paying better attention to this good news of great joy for all people. If that's what it takes, then it's it's a worthy use of your time. the risk of adding something to your plate though maybe some of us need to pick up a copy of our advent devotional and walk through it together maybe a guide through this season will help us pay attention to what is good and what is necessary i love this christmas season but it doesn't mean that we can't do much better than what the lost world around us thinks that this season ought to be right we really going to let them dictate the terms here? <laughs> it's our holiday. Let's take it back. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll have some leaders down front here to talk and pray with you if that would serve you well. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond to God's word too and you do that by meeting Jesus. By meeting Jesus. We say all the time around here that, that we said it just a second ago that we celebrate Christmas so that we can celebrate Good Friday and Easter. Jesus came for the purpose of dying. He came for that purpose. He came to pay the sin debt that separates you from God and to reconcile you to himself. And so now he calls on you to respond to him in faith this morning. And so what does that mean? It means to believe that he's who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do and trust him as Lord. That's what it means to respond to Jesus in faith. I hope you'll do that this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down front if uh, if you need some help walking through what that process looks like. I'd love to do that. But let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the Christmas story. 
I'll confess, I, I can read it and fly through it without even paying attention. It comes with the territory. It's part of the job even for me. But you chose to give it to me. You chose to give that story to us because it changes us. It is good news of great joy for all peoples. You are the God who came near. You're not seated on a faraway throne wondering why we haven't figured it out yet. You're the God who chose to come, who stepped into a broken world stained and wrecked by sin. You lived righteously when we couldn't. And you died sacrificially so that we wouldn't have to. So God, as we celebrate your coming this month, would you help us sift through all the noise? Noise isn't bad until it distracts us from the, from the good stuff. Would you help us sift through all the noise and focus better on a story that turns the world upside down? It's hard to do in this world. Would you help us be a light in a dark place this year? Would you help us even maybe be the ones that share this story like angels on a hillside to those who didn't see it coming? I don't know what that looks like yet, but you are good and you will provide. God, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see and hearts to know? Would you draw them to yourself today? Would you grow your kingdom by it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.